We're going to start by dealing with the scariest place on earth, our own minds. Any of you who do not chuckle at that or look down, you are lying. The most wretched conversations, the most evil voices, the most conflict you will ever find is the conflict that you have with yourself. Let me paint a picture for you. Ever lie awake at night? My <laughs> Perfect, Bubba. Ever lie awake at night, mind racing, not able to shut off the hamster wheel in your head, thinking over every mistake you made that day, or even longer, thinking over every mistake you made that week, or the mistake that you made 10 years ago that you forgot to make, and it keeps replaying over and over again in your head. Your mind ever not allow you to rest because you're worried about what will happen tomorrow. You're worried about how you're going to deal with this new difficulty that you're going to be faced with. Ever have to have an intervention with yourself just to go to sleep? Just me? What do you do when this happens? What does the psalmist do when this happens? And so I will argue as the psalmist Asaf does this morning that the problem in discouragement is what you remember. Because when we're discouraged, what we think about is all the things that disappoint us, all the things that discourage us, and we're focused so much on ourselves and our circumstances and everything that's wrong, and those things are the things that easily come to mind. They play on repeat. It's not easy to remember the good things, but the evil things, the things that are disappointing, the things that fall short are always right there. But I will also argue that the remedy in our discouragement is also what we remember, also what we think about. Because in those times, we can either be focused on ourselves and focused on everything that's wrong with the world and everything that's wrong with our lives, or we can do as the psalmist does and remind ourselves of who our God is and what our God has done and find our encouragement in Him, even if there seems like there's nothing in our lives to find encouragement in. One of my favorite passages for this is 2 Corinthians 10. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians 10. Because what we're dealing with this morning right now is many of our worst enemies, our own flesh. And when we realize that our, our battle against our own flesh is not a physical battle, it's a spiritual battle, we have to use the tools of spiritual warfare. So 2 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war against, or excuse me, according to the flesh. We fight our flesh, but we don't fight back according to our flesh. When we do, we will fail. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. How do you get past your own self? Stop trying to fix your problems with your solutions. As Jesse mentioned earlier. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. This is such an important principle for the believer. We take our thoughts captive because so often they captivate us and drag us away and keep us in slavery. But we take them captive, not in our own strength, but to obey Christ. 
being ready to punish every disobedience, even within ourselves, when your obedience is complete. Talking about spiritual maturity here. But look at verse 7. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, Christ, so also are we. That's what we're dealing with this morning. If you know that you are Christ, remind yourself of that. In the times when your, your own mind fails you, when your own memories are, your, are playing tricks on you and fighting against you, remind yourself that you are Christ. And Paul gives the added encouragement that so also are we. That's why we can bear one another's burdens. That's why we can go to one another and encourage one another. Because in Christ, we can remind each other of that truth. Remind each other to take those thoughts captive to Christ. So let's jump right into our text in Psalm 77. Psalm 77. To the choir master. According to Jejuthan. Psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble I seek the Lord. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago, and I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for me? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed in every side. The crash of your thunder was in the world when your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Let's pray. God, you are a holy God. All your ways are holy and righteous. Upright and ruling with a mighty arm are you. There is none like you, God. No one can compare. There is no, no one who does wondrous deeds but you. There is no one who can save but you. There is no redemption found among man. There is no salvation in anywhere else. You, our God, took on flesh. 
to show your holiness, to show your mighty deeds, to show of your redemption. That we might have eyes to see and hear, ears to hear, and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is our focus this morning. That in our darkness, in the fog that exists in our own head, in our own discouragement, that we would see You, that we would seek You, that we would search diligently Your truth, that we may apply it to our lives, who You are and what You've done, that we may rejoice with the psalmist and our holy, mighty, and merciful God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in our psalm this morning, I'm going to have four sections, four stanzas. Even though we still do not know what the selahs mean in the text, it's some kind of liturgical or musical direction, we're going to use that to divide up our text this morning. So we've got uh, 1 through 3, 4 through 9, 10 through 15, and then 16 through 20. We're going to look at each one of those. Um, and then this psalm is uh, historically difficult to translate. So if you have another translation of the Scriptures and you're wondering why some of the phrasing is different, um, not that they are, they are bad. There are legitimate different interpretations of certain words which can drive the way this psalm is read. So we're going to stick with the ESV this morning. Um, but it does not change the meaning. It does not change the purpose. It changes the intent of a few lines. But if you come across that in your reading, I just want to... Uh, stop any questions that I'm going to have afterward. Like, why does the ESV say this? And my, my interpretation says this. Uh, there's your explanation. So what you will notice is there's a, a sudden shift throughout this psalm. The beginning, he's very focused on himself. You see a lot of first person, eyes, me's, focused on himself. And his concern is with his own circumstances. But as we drift through this psalm, His concern is going to be more focused on God, more focused on the Lord. Um, And so we're going to see this shift from depression into contemplation, which closes in acclamation. He's, He's discouraged. He has to think. He has to ask himself some questions, and he ends up declaring who God is. So I want to jump right in in verse 1. Now, the first thing we're going to see in this section is there's a lot of vivid action words. Look at all these actions in one through three. I cry aloud. I seek the Lord. I stretch out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. He wants you to be right there with him. He wants you to know that that this is not some light affliction that he feels. This, he's completely overwhelmed with it. Every bit of him is, is taken over by this. All of his actions, these are things he does. He stretches his arm out in his own strength. He won't bring it back, but to no avail. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. This is repeated in the Hebrew for emphasis. He cries out, out loud. He knows God will hear, but it doesn't feel like it. Verse 2, in the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. 
but my soul refuses to be comforted. This is a man who knows his God. This is the same psalmist that we looked at last week, who is confident in the Lord, who did not waver in his faith. This is not a man without faith. This is a man with faith in difficulty. And in this difficulty, he remembers God. God, you are good. And he moans because he doesn't feel good. Because he doesn't feel like the good God is with him right now. When I meditate, my spirit faints. His mind is going. and He's exhausting himself in his own thoughts. In his own emotions, he's in conflict with himself. What he's saying in these first three verses are going to set up the rest of this psalm is what many of us have said in distress. In the darkness, by ourselves, our own thoughts, playing like a movie reel of the worst times in our life. And we begin to ask, as we cry out to God, I know you hear me, why don't you do anything? I'm done, I can't take anymore, I'm, I'm faint. I can't fight anymore. God, do you even care? After all this, I still feel the same. How can a God who listens let me feel this way? Why can't I get out of this funk that I'm in? This is not a momentary thing. If you look at verses 1 through 6, how much he's thinking about himself. We go on to verse 4. You hold my eyelids open. Anyone ever been there like, I want to go to sleep so bad. My eyes are burning. I'm exhausted, but I can't close my eyes. I can't stop my mind from thinking. I can't, I can't get over what I'm dealing with right now. He's so consumed with what he's feeling. And if you look at the words that are used here in 4 through 6, he is completely consumed. His eyelids, so we've got his sight. He can't speak, so his his eyes, his mouth, he's considering, he's remembering, so his, his mind is consumed and his heart is meditating. My eyes, my speech, my mind, my heart, He is completely overwhelmed with what is going on. We don't know what's going on. But every one of us has been there. Every one of us has been in a place where it feels like, is there any part of me that is sane right now? And further, he's he's fully consumed. Look at the words, the, 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 the verbs he uses here. I am so troubled. But how much the the emphasis is on his mind. Look at these four words. I consider the days of old. What is making this more difficult? He's looking back to the good old days. I remember back when things were better. I remember the good old days, the, the days of old when I wasn't worrying about this. When it felt like you were right with me, God. Not now where it feels like you're you're different. I considered those days. And I said, Let me remember my song in the night. He's trying to bring to his remembrance, this is a priest. 
His job is to lead worship in the temple. He knows worship songs. Let let me remember my song in the night. When I'm up and my eyelids are open and I can't sleep, let me remember my joyous songs. Let me bring to mind. But his mind is still failing him. Let me meditate in my heart. Let me think on this. Let Let me apply it. You notice the focus here is me. I am so troubled. I consider. Let me remember. There's this, this, this tension that is going on within him. And so now here's where we find ourselves. How does he get out of this? How does he transition from thinking about himself and being so overwhelmed by whatever is troubling him He begins to do something that I talked on before when we were in Psalm 42, and I want to bring this back up again. He begins to talk to himself. begins to give himself orders, which is a a good practice. Let me remember my song in the night. This is a a, a good start. Okay, if I'm just going to think about myself, let me me try to think about some, some praise songs. Let me remember. Let me meditate in my heart. Begin directing himself in that. Then my spirit made a diligent search. So I've used this quotation before, and I want to use it again because it's brilliant. And like anything I've ever heard from or read from Martin Lloyd-Jones, it is brilliant. So he wrote a book called Spiritual Depression, which is largely based on Psalm 42 that we spent a lot of time in when we were in Psalm 42 several months back. But I love this, this excerpt and this principle. So it'll be up on the screen. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Do you know what he's saying there? You're listening to the voices in your head instead of in, we're probably lying to you, versus talking to yourself, telling yourself the truth. Take those thoughts that come to you in the moment that you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them. Why am I thinking this? Why is this stuff popping into my head? But they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday, etc. Somebody's talking to you. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Yes, this sounds crazy, but everyone knows what I'm talking about. Everyone has had this particular conversation with yourself, and you wonder, self, why are you saying this to me? And I love how he brings in the practical side of this, which speaks directly to our psalm. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. Come here, self. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself, and I will appeal, if needed, shake yourself. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, what God is, and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. This is where we pick up now, in the meat of the psalm. This is where we find the psalmist. Then my spirit made a diligent search. If we just did this more often, instead of letting this movie play in our minds again and again and again, get off the broken record of thinking about ourselves and search diligently. Search for truth instead of settling for lies. What an important thing to think about, that 
when we're in despair that we search for truth instead of just settling for the lies. It's easy to remain in our own discouragement and our own depression. But searching is an action. Then, now we get into this conversation that he has with himself, which is beautiful. And have you ever had this conversation with yourself? Well, God doesn't care. All this is going on. Where is God? Why is God not answering my prayers? Basically, why does God not do things the way I think he should on my time? And then if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, these sorts of questions should come right afterward. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? He asks six rhetorical questions he knows the answer to. This is honest meditation, but he, asked, he has to ask himself these. By asking himself these questions, he's answering them. Because as soon as he vocalizes these, he realizes how ridiculous this sounds. He realizes that all the answers to these questions are certainly not. Will the Lord spurn forever? Of course not. And never again be favorable? Well, that's just silly. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Well, come on. Are his promises at an end for all time? You mean the God of the Bible? Has God forgotten to be gracious? God forgotten to be gracious? Like how ridiculous does that sound? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? We know that sounds silly coming out of our mouths, but how often do our, our feelings portray that to us? Uh, there's another quote from a brilliant theologian that I'll have to translate for you. I'm going to read it but he's Scottish, so I'm going to have to translate it for you as well. Uh, Alexander McLaren, I love how he describes this. So we're going to break this down. He says, Doubts are better put into plain speech than lying diffused and darkened, like a poisonous mist in the heart. That's beautiful. What he's saying here is, in plain speech, lies are like a fog in your head. Light that is diffused is not bright. It's, it's spread out, and it doesn't have much strength. It's darkened. It's like a poisonous mist. And that's how he describes doubts. And he's right. Doubts are like a poisonous mist, a fog that's in our head, and it it darkens what we know to be true. But it doesn't just stay in our head. It permeates our hearts because our, our thoughts drive our affections. A thought, he says, be it good or bad, can be dealt with when it is made articulate. This is exactly what the psalmist is doing. Okay, I've got these these unhealthy thoughts going in my mind, I'm going to speak them out loud. I'm going to make them articulate. I'm going to speak them to myself and see if what I'm saying makes sense, see if it proves to be true. And so he says, formulating vague conceptions is like cutting a channel into a bog for the water to run in. Now, if you're not from Scotland, if you've never been to Scotland, you know what a bog is. We live in Florida. You know what a swamp is or a marsh. But a bog is different. It is deeper. It is feet and feet of decayed material, of moss. Makes for really good scotch. That's why they call it that. But this bog is this deep... So I've heard. So this, this, this bog is a uh, deep swampland that you cannot get through. It's just, it's just a, a big, wet sponge. And so it's in the low-lying areas of, of Scotland. And so to, to clear it out, what must you do? Here's what he says. To cut a channel. It says, formulating vague conceptions is like cutting a channel into a bog for the water to run out. It's difficult at first. It's this thick, wet stuff. 
But once you cut this, this channel out, it gets, excuse me, one gets it together in manageable shape and the soil is drained. So what he's saying is, by taking these foggy thoughts in your mind, it's like cutting through a marsh, allowing the water to drain out. Otherwise, it's going to sit in all that, that dead material and it's going to be stagnant and there's going to be no life for it. You've got to cut through it. And how do you do that? By just speaking it out loud and formulating those thoughts. And so here's an application from us. This is a great lesson when you get into those mental, emotional, and spiritual funks. Put your own conclusions into words. Talk to yourself. Preach to yourself. Ask questions about what you're thinking and feeling at the moment and see if they ring true. Could God ever forget about me? Would he ever leave me? Would he ever forsake me? Would God lie to me? Do I really believe he can't redeem this? Are the voices in my head telling me the truth? Are my feelings lying or is God lying? This is really what it comes down to. So this is another fallacy that I think is important for us to discuss. We often think it's harmful to doubt or ask questions. So if I have doubts, if I have questions, I shouldn't voice them, I shouldn't say them out loud. But what we do is we just suppress them and we let them continue to play. I would argue on the other side of that. It's actually harmful when you give no response to your doubts, when you give no answers to your questions and you leave them unanswered. You settle for the lies instead of searching for truth. That is where the poisonous mist develops. When you begin to engage with those doubts and ask questions and be honest about what you're wrestling with before God and before others, light shines in the darkness and the mist dissipates. Amen. And now here's where we get the transition. Verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Now he gets it. After asking himself these questions, after asking these rhetorical questions, he says, I will appeal to this, the years at the right hand of the Most High. All night long, his hand has been stretching out in nothing. Well, my strength isn't working. My stretching out is not working. I'm going to appeal to God in his mighty right hand. He said, instead of appealing to my circumstances... I'm going to appeal to the track record of the Most High. I'm going to appeal to the God who I know to be unchanging. Because if something changes, it's not him, it's probably me. Let me focus on that. The solution is in the hand of God, not his own. And then what does he do to right the ship? Verse 11. Then I, or excuse me, verse 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. This is how he writes the ship. He takes the same thoughts that were lying to him earlier and he takes them captive, takes them captive to Christ. This is how you write the ship. So many people, when they're in a storm, in a ship, they keep steering into it thinking, I'm going to keep going toward the lightning and assume it's going to get better. Okay, there's no sunshine yet, but I'm still going into the storm. How often do we stay in the negativity of our own minds? But when the psalmist here remembers who his God is, he writes the ship, begins preaching to himself. 
He starts steering toward the Lord, repenting, turning from the lies in his head, and he begins to see light. Now the storm begins to break because he's, he's steering away from it. And the whole tone changes. And we need to do the same thing. Listen, I love you guys. I'm not naming names, but I've talked to so many of you where it's like, this is so difficult. I can't get over this. I can't get over this. This, is, this has been plaguing me. Let me be blunt with you. It's plaguing you because you keep thinking about it. You keep dwelling on it. You keep letting it run over and over and over in your head. Steer away from it. Stop thinking about yourself and remember who God is. Put your eyes to him. Because I think the beauty there is if you ever noticed when you remember your current problems, God seems so far away. But when you remember God's greatness, his power and his love toward you, your problems begin to shift into perspective. Okay, well, this is not as bad as I was making it seem. This is only a light momentary affliction in light of an eternal weight of glory, which we've read from 2 Corinthians 4 earlier. How does he do that? What is the remedy here? What does he do specifically? Yes, he remembers the Lord. He remembers him. All those words he was doing earlier. Earlier, he was considering the days of old. He was remembering his songs. He was meditating in his heart. Now, he's, re- he's pondering the Lord's work. He's remembering the deeds of the Lord. He's remembering not his good old days, but God's wonders of old. And he's meditating on his mighty deeds. And so what does he do? He begins to preach to himself. Most of you will never preach in a pulpit, but you should preach to yourself every day. What does he do? Your way, O God, is holy. What God is like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. It is so hard to say those words and still be discouraged. He brings up three things here. Verse 13, 14, and 15 about God in pairs of two. So three couplets that we see here. And the lesson in this is, for if we know that God is unchanging, and he's, these things have been true in the past, they will be true now, and they will be true in the future, and I can put my hope in them. So if you know who God is, if you begin with the nature of God, and you remind yourself and you preach these things to yourself, they become a, swat, a solid ground in the midst of of your own boggy swamp. This is what he does. The first thing, the first couplet. Your way, O God, is holy. What what God is great like our God? Our God is holy and our God is great. No one is like our God. You must begin here. Our God is holy. He is set apart. He is holy other. No one is like him. No one even comes close. No one's even in the same stratosphere. He is holy. God who is without error. A God who is without weakness. A God who is perfect in all of his ways. And he is not just perfect in who he is. He's perfect and he is is great. He is powerful. There is nothing small about him. He's also perfect in what he does. Verse 14. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the people. So you've got God's holiness and his greatness. You've got his wondrous deeds and his wondrous might. He does great things, and he does them in a great way. That is who God is. He is a great God who does great things in a great way. And his deeds 
are among the peoples. Whenever we see peoples in the plural, this is nations. All the world knows who our God is. They suppress the truth and believe a lie. But His mighty works are inarguable. The third thing. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Joseph and Jacob. He is a holy God who does wondrous works, but His most wondrous work is saving sinners like you and me. His most awesome deed is that He can take broken, cursed beings. Excuse me, before that, He took dust and made into perfect beings. Let them break themselves and then make them perfect again through His Son. That is how great our God is. A holy and mighty God is also a loving God. God loves His people. So when you find yourself in that funk, remember that our God is holy. Our God is great. Our God is powerful. And and most importantly to us, our God is merciful. He redeems His people. So when the psalmist thinks about this, it's kind of hard to remain in that funk that you're in. Well, man, that God, the same holy and great God, has redeemed me. This was an important tool for Israel. This is why when we're in Deuteronomy, we see this over and over and over again, that God reminds them of what he's done, because he knows how quick they are to forget, just like how quick we are to forget. He reminds them to remember, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who brought you out of the house of slavery. So Israel continually told of their redemption. So should we. Because this is our message. This is our good news. We have the same holy God. There is none like Him. No, all gods are not the same. There is none like you. There is no one great like our God. He is almighty. He created the world. His glory is seen in general revelation. The skies and the trees and the birds and the water declare His majesty and might. You can't look at a sunset and say, that got there by accident. That is our God. His deeds are made known in special revelation. Every page of the Scriptures declare the mighty deeds of our God. The wondrous works. The God who condescended and took on flesh. This God needs nothing. We cannot add anything to Him. He's not waiting for us to run to Him because He needs to be validated by our feelings. This God finds His glory in redeeming a people who cannot redeem themselves. And He took pleasure in redeeming them. Took pleasure in sending His Son for prodigal sons, so that they might become adopted sons. That is our good news. Israel declared it all the time, do we? Israel declared we have been redeemed from slavery. We have been redeemed from Israel. If you are in Christ Jesus, you have been redeemed from your sin. And now you are spiritual children of Jacob and Joseph through faith. So verse 15 here, what's he talking about? You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Joseph and Jacob. He's talking about Israel's redemption event, the event in the history of Israel, the one that comes up more than any. What is that event? The Exodus. And so in these last verses here, we've got an illustration of what God has done. And he's talking about a particular event. Yes, these are, these are forces of nature. 
So I want us to go back to Exodus 14. I want us to read that account. And I love what the psalmist does here. He takes an account that is normally read from the perspective of the Israelites. It's taught in Sunday school, and it's taught in most places by, okay, look what, look what Israel did. Israel walked on dry ground. Israel turned back in fear. Israel saw the, the chariots fall. But if you read Exodus 14 and you read this psalm, everything is told from God's perspective. And I want us to reorient the way we think. Because I will argue that even when we read Scripture, we read it in, in terms of the people instead of God. And we read ourselves into Scripture and make ourselves the, the, the focal point. Look at how God speaks to Moses here. Exodus 14, I'm going to pick up in verse 13. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. Who's doing the work here? For the Egyptians... Whom you see today, you shall never see again. We just gloss over that. Don't worry about them because you're never going to see them again. This might be one of my favorite lines in all of Scripture. Verse 14. The Lord will fight for you. All you have to do is only be silent. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Shut up and let God work. Stop complaining. Stop trying to get in the driver's seat. God's going to do this. And why does God do this? Verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. God, why would you harden these nice people's hearts? So that they shall go after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. Why does God do it? For his glory. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. All this so that his name will be declared. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Even as you're drowning, he was really God. He meant what he was saying. Now we get the details of the parting of the Red Sea itself. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. Coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud in the darkness, and it lit up the night with, without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out the hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went in the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. That is how we read the account of the Exodus, the parting of the Red Sea, and it's true. But I love what the psalmist does here. The psalmist goes into detail about God's control over creation. And he, he expands on it. And he tells of God's hand in the events. And I love that he tells it from divine orchestration. Every bit of glory and all of the credit goes to God. Look at what he says here in verses 16 through 20. Now, try to picture the scene. Instead of the simple uh, crossing of the Red Sea flannel graph that we normally see. Picture this. And if you don't know what a flannel graph is, <laughs> David will explain it to you later. <laughs> if you're over 30, you know what a flannel graph is. When the waters saw you, O oh God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. This is our God. He makes the very waters afraid. You know those big oceans that everyone's afraid to cross? Our God makes them afraid. Indeed, the deep 
trembled. Miles down into the ocean shook. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder, and your arrows flashed on every side. You know what lightning is? God's arrows. On every side. In Exodus it said it lit up the sky. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings light up the whole world. That is our God. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. He parted the water without having to step on solid ground. That's our God. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. When you read through this the first time, did you think he was talking about the Exodus? Did you guys get that? Good. But when we think about Scripture, when we read Scripture, this is, this is an important exercise for us to do. Read it from God's perspective. Give God the glory. Sometimes we just see what's going on here and we forget that behind the clouds, behind the thunder, behind the lightning, behind the waters parting, there is a mighty right hand of God. And so when the psalmist reaches this, well, what was I afraid of? That's my God. My God parts seas. My God sends lightning down to the earth like arrows. My God thunders the entire world. My God can light up the skies. What do I have to fear my circumstances for? So when we hear Israel recount their exodus, it should make us think of our exodus event. What if we did the same thing? Because typically when we think about our exodus event, where we are brought out of our slavery, we talk about the people and the moving pieces, but do we see the hand of God behind it? What if we did the same thing and give God the glory for His great deeds? What if we said, Oh God, You sent Your Son to earth to take on flesh. You made Him be humiliated by His peers. You allowed them to put Him on a cross. You darkened the skies. You shook the very ground. You blotted out the sun as your son hung on the cross. You poured out your full wrath on your, uh, on your son. The fullness of your anger against sin pouring out like a waterfall that never ends. You took the last breath out of him. He chose death that we might have life. You tore the temple veil from top to bottom showing that this could only be a work of God. That the wall between God and man that existed is no longer because of the one hanging on the tree. You brought him down to the depths You breathe new life into Emmanuel so he could breathe life into us. You rolled away the stone. You sent your angels to declare your wondrous works. You led him out of the grave so that he might lead his flock out of the grave. So this is where the parallel picks up here. I want to close in verse 20. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Because the same Son, fully God, fully man, who took on flesh, who died, 
rose again, walked out of that tomb as the shepherd of his people. We're very familiar with John 10, and we love the I am the good shepherd. But if you turn to John 10, I want to look at the end of that passage. And here's the emphasis for us. God has always been a shepherd to his people. Human shepherds have always failed. Now they have a human shepherd who is also God as a shepherd. I want to pick up in John chapter 10, verse 24. So he tells, I'm the good shepherd. Some time passes. Jews start interrogating him again, verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. This is what's at stake here. This is what's most important. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. The wondrous deeds of God bear witness that I am God. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is our Exodus story. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I am God in the flesh. This is why the Jews picked up stones. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And if anyone ever tells you Jesus never claimed to be God, take them to John 10. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? The Jews answered them, It is not for good works that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. That is our shepherd, God in the flesh. That is our shepherd who does mighty deeds and who redeems his people. So I want to leave you with this thought. Are you of the flock? Do you hear his voice? Do you follow him? Or do you want to remain in Egypt? Are you comfortable in your slavery to sin? Maybe it's even a more pressing question. Are you of his flock, yet still listening to the voices of Egypt? Are you his, and you have the truth in your hands, but you prefer the lies of your own making? Search diligently. What is true? Can God be trusted? Are the words we read this morning, are the words in this entire book true? Remember who he is. Remember his deeds. This psalm can teach us many things. One, we're not the only ones who doubt. We're not the only ones who feel discouraged. We're not the only ones who are tempted to stay in that. But the remedy is not to focus more on our own selves and our own circumstances, but on God. And when your thoughts and memories fail you, When you become your own worst enemy in your own mind, bring to your mind, talk to yourself. Tell yourself who God is and what He has done. I want to close you with this. Or, excuse me, leave you with this. We can have hope today, excuse me, we can have hope for tomorrow, today, because of who God was yesterday and all throughout history. All His greatest deeds, but the greatest of all is that He has redeemed His people. And our shepherd continues to lead us and guide us and correct us in our discouragement. When you are discouraged, remember him. Let's pray.
Oh God, you are a great God. You are holy and awesome.